0: The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.
1: This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm delighted to say I am joined by Professor New Evans, who is Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, uh, we're going to cover a range of topics, I know, but where do you want to begin today? So, um, a really a good article recently in the national press by dan Hannan,
0: and it was called the authoritarian temptation is on the rise from belarus to the united states mm. and what i found interesting about this article um and we'll look at some of the detail of it in a minute is that it in a way um it it it, it, it puts some sort of flesh on the bones and on the skeleton of some of the pessimistic things that we've discussed in recent years. Mm. Normally, anyone who knows me actually knows I'm uh, I'm an optimist in life, and and I like to think optimistically because I think strategically and tactically is wise. But I have felt, and I've expressed it uh, on this show a number of times, that the world is 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 turning in in a darker direction. That in a mm. in a way for people like me who were born in the '60s, we've had it really good. It's been generally very prosperous. Um, and 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 it's been peaceful and democracy and markets and globalization and good things have been on the rise. But you know something's been nagging away and it's been gnawing away. I think both for you and for me. For example, ever since the the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, and 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 this article is spectacular because it, it it does provide a bit of a global overview and pulls together kind of what's going on. So, in a nutshell, he he sort of paints a picture where, um, yeah, people like Belarusia, um, uh, Lukashenko, are doing, you know, naughty things regarding airline piracy. He and Putin are cracking down, becoming ever more authoritarian. Um, There are, you know, tensions in the Black Sea, tensions, of course, between Russia and Ukraine. Um, And uh, we're seeing, um, even in North Africa, Tunisia, which did do relatively well, actually, in the Arab Spring. It was one of the sort of beacons shedding some light. Um, well, it's turned dark. It's even blocked. Can you believe it? Al Jazeera's broadcasts, um, and it recently sent uh, troops onto the streets um, in Latin America. Well, we've long known about you know the tyranny of Cuba, and 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 also the tyranny and problems in Venezuela. But recently, when demonstrators rose up in Cuba, wanting more freedom, more liberalisation, uh, access to travel, more markets, more private property, and all all the things that sustain a good society and economy, well. Some 500 demonstrators have gone unaccounted for. Um, y- y- you find Daniel Ortega, um, the leader of Nicaragua's Sandinistas. Uh, he clearly now has no intention, quite frankly, of ever holding an election or or or, or a free ballot again. Um, in Peru, we have a now a Marxist leader, and that sort of wave of 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 what you might call the totalitarian left. That's now. Uh, uh, starting to uh, manifest uh, in Argentina uh, and Bolivia, uh, and even in sort of Latin American uh, stalwarts of hope, you know, Colombia, Brazil, Chile. And we're not really now dwelling on Putin or Xi Jinping or even Erdogan, but there does seem um, this wave uh, around the world. And when you have Trump in America, and you you do have Erdogan in Hungary, and uh, sorry, you have you know the, the you you have the the authoritarian tendency in places like Hungary and Turkey. Yes. Then then I think you start to fear that in Europe, um, and in 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 the really firmly established democracies, that temptation to find some sort of strong man or strong woman uh, is coming ever near. And as we become more polarised in our democracies and people move to more extreme positions, as they're often doing, you know, you see on the right, ever more xenophobia, ever more obsession with all forms of nationalism and on the left, um, abandonment of, 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 of property rights and moving, you know, ever mm. farther to, to, to uh, Marxism. Then you really wonder where this is going to go. And, and the question that Dan Hannah asks is, is the open society you know, slipping away from us and in and in some ways surprisingly unmourned and and almost unremarked. And um, I find it scary, but it does pull, as I say, together some themes that I think have been welling up its surfaces an awful lot.
1: Yes, it's hard to be that optimistic after reading this piece, I confess. And he talks about the democracy index, which admittedly has only been calculated since two thousand and six. Um, but saying it's currently on a, a score of five point three seven out of ten, and it's the lowest recorded since they started, which obviously shows the tendency. But he doesn't necessarily give the impression that uh, while he's saying that Britain, you know, is, is far from like those other say, spared the worst part of this tendency, he says. But he's he's not necessarily that optimistic about about us either. I mean, he claims that you know Boris, because, because of his, I think he called it a Rabelaisian um, personality and doesn't like being bossed out. So we had an unusually liberal political climate. But he's saying that COVID has brought out the totalitarian in many people. What's he saying? The country is full of petty dictators demanding restrictions, raging at nonconformists, opposing any move to lift prohibitions. Well, change was especially noticed here because we had had a previously individualistic culture. Or do you think he's just trying, you know, for the sake of Coming up with a rather more intriguing end to his article being unduly pessimistic about the uk
0: well first is i think he's a brilliant writer and he has always yes been there. and yeah. of course the great thing about dan hannon like uh, like all the best thinkers, um he's very provocative and, and he's won already hasn't he because we're talking about his article and we're pouring yeah. over the meaning yes of it. yes so, you know, bingo for him um but i i you know i know dan and i sense it always helps when you know a writer at a sort of personal level mm because you, you can slightly read between the lines. And and my sense is that you know he is a very moderate classical liberal, and he was also um, actually what I would call a moderate um, um, Brexiteer. I, I don't think for him Brexit meant go all the way. I think it was more a default to things like EFTA. Um,
1: yes, uh, yes, he, he was, said that the whole way through, I think, yes.
0: Yeah. So I think he's worried about where these sort of inflection points in history can take us, and can they take you to darker places than than most people expected? And so he's trying to paint a picture here, and it's one of be very, very careful. I mean, I think the thing that impresses me um, the most is how, my goodness, this contrasts to the positivity uh, that that so many people had when the Berlin Wall came down um, in the 1990s with that sort of rise of new labor clinton in the united states mm-hmm. and and of course the famous scholarship um that, that, that was built around the phrase the end of history the, the idea that that you know having seen off the fascists and the nazis and now that the end of uh the collapse of, of, of communism that somehow the liberal uh open society and the liberal western democracies and that model of statecraft and mm-hmm. governance was somehow going to be uh, uh, uh triumphant and, and 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 was going to dominate the 21st century well here we are you know um at the beginning of the, the century's third decade and there seems to be this sort of creeping unwariness about where are we going almost a lack of um certainty on the dial of direction where we're going and to me it's it is reminiscent of some of the feelings, I think, that were around in places like Britain in the Edwardian period. There was a tremendous sense that globalization had brought a lot of prosperity, um, and that technology was marching on. And there were really profound questions, I think, around, you know, will this go on, or will there be some kind of calamity? And there were extremists at the margins, even the Edwardian phase, that did upset upset Middle England. It wasn't just, for example, the Kaiser and, and looming nationalism mm-hmm. militarism in Germany. There was a concern about extreme forms of socialism as well, and that unsettled the audience. And I sense that we're, you know, that the, the moderate liberal Democrats, people like me, who are fairly middle of the road, you know, they're they're socially liberal, um, economically classically liberal. Uh, classical libertarian, civil libertarian, you know, believe in democracy, believe in inclusion, uh, believe in internationalism, all those things, that there is that, there is, there's something stirring that, that, that is concerning that kind of settlement. And I don't think we've seen this um, questioning, this kind of Dan Hannon, uh, for for about 110 years. And it really makes me wonder um, what is coming. Now, maybe, Dan is being unduly pessimistic, but maybe not. I just think you, you feel that that liberal open society that, that history has not ended, and there are an awful lot of question marks uh, hanging over the next decade
1: or two. I mean, it is intriguing. As you said earlier on, it, it's brought together many of the strands that you've discussed on different occasions over the past year or two. But clearly, you're right. I mean, the, the, the conventional liberal western view was always that other nations would recognize just how much better than any other system uh conventional and open democracies were but we haven't really seen many countries embrace that perhaps a few of the countries of the former soviet union but china in particular there's a long-held view that china by becoming more market orientated would eventually become a more open democratic country but boy we've seen that's not the not the case And many of these countries discussed here are relatively small, but China is just so enormous and uh, has such extraordinary influence. Um, I mean, how serious do you think it is? I mean, perhaps Hannon is exaggerating a little for the sake of the article, but you know, there are these Jeremiah's, you know, warning need to be there, as you say. You know, other people are not warning of the possible dangers. I mean, how worried would? you be after reading this piece if you if you felt he was right
0: well well first of all i am genuinely worried by the polarization that i see in the united states and the united states is really important because it's a beacon and if you believe in the open society and you believe in democracy then you look to um you look to scandinavia you look to europe um and you look to the united states and you know the united states has been a beacon because no other country in in recent centuries has you know basically said bring us your huddled masses it doesn't matter about your color your creed your 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 religion your belief your status you know your education come here we will give you rule of law uh we will uh give you basic property rights and if you work hard uh, you, you can make it. It doesn't matter who you are, you can make it. And and that sort of general idea. I mean that America isn't so much a country as it is an ideology and, and really that's what it's about. Um and, and I'm not actually glossing over all the caveats the history is saying mm-hmm. All the all all, all 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 the more problematic ends of their history, but but that was the kind of uh, beacon that they represented. And when you have Republicans who say they believe in freedom and tolerance, yet who don't accept that that the, the Democrats win <laughs> and storm Congress, you know you know you're in trouble. And when you have uh, a vociferous and hard left. Um, uh, within the Democrat Party who actually don't really respect uh, the basics of property rights, and they think that massive state intervention yes. um, is the way to go, you've got problems there. But when you have both sides, you know, that don't even accept the process of elections and, and really don't accept the legitimacy of results, as clearly a lot of people on the Republican right don't, then I think you have real, real problems. Yes. And what that means is that that countries like China um, people with authoritarian leaderships can say, well, look, you know, democracy is, is a good thing and it's wonderful, but um, my goodness, you're circulating elites. They're always arguing. Um, they spend a lot of money. Um, they're not necessarily as efficient as we are. And, and you know, I keep come back to it. It's a crass point, but it's important. The debate in this country around whether we have a new runway at Heathrow or not mm. That debate started in August um, at 1965. And, yes. and the Chinese are building, you know, the Chinese can build in an average year as much runway um, for, their, for their aircraft as as as, as we've ever yeah. been. Yes. And you know, and even, even there, I laugh down here in, the, in in sort of the southwest of England, which is where I am at the moment, um, um, again, the court, the high court has defeated. Um, the government's plans to build a tunnel at Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if you have, if you don't have to have a parliament and be accountable to to the people, you can do these projects and you can bulldoze them through quite literally. So we we have, I think, this very, very contested terrain now about who can get things done. And that's where the strong man, Mm -hmm. the strong woman can appeal But my goodness, it can come at a price for free speech and for Mm. democracy and for travel. So Mm. I think we're seeing a lot of contestability about around statecraft and what model people will adopt in this century.
1: Then when you're talking about the United States, you're talking about um, so many things that sort of resonate here as well. The the refusal to accept a democratic result, the... um, uh, you were talking about the Democrats and state intervention, we can talk about the Conservatives and state intervention. But we shouldn't go down there because we're going to talk about something else. Um, Tim, let us let us take a brief pause and we will change topics.
0: Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
1: This is Simon Rose. I'm in conversation for The Bigger Picture with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, our second topic, what's it going to be?
0: Our second topic is an article by Jeremy Warner. Um, uh, Jeremy has attended event organised by Middlesex University in the past, when we were allowed to hold events, by the way. Yes. Uh, and, and he's a good friend of, of Middlesex University. And uh, as indeed, I, he writes for The Telegraph, but as indeed is also the economics correspondent um, of The Guardian, I should add, for for, 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 for balance. But um, great article by Jeremy, and it, it was headlined, No wonder Andrew Bailey is upset, bank caught between a rock and a hard place. So we have this new, relatively new, um, um, uh, head of the Bank of England, governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey. And um, I think what's interesting about the position of him and the bank at the moment is that lots of fairly mainstream, middle-of-the-road economic thinkers are increasingly identifying something again, Simon, that you and I have talked, we discussed, and been on to for many years, which is this idea of the the central bank being between a rock and a hard place. And what that means is that there is now so much debt, um, uh, uh, the the government is so indebted, um, and it has accrued so much debt at a period of such low interest rates that serious questions arise over what would happen uh, both to government spending, and our politics more generally and our economy uh if interest rates have to go up and of course the bank of england has been very very active um, during the pandemic just as it was uh in the wake of the financial crisis it's used uh, even larger sums in many ways of quantitative easing than it, than it previously did and what what this raises is questions around um really the the so-called independent central bank um funding the day-to-day expenditure of 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 the government and where that may leave markets um in the future you know will they maintain co- confidence um in the pound or could there be a uh, capital flight could there be some sort of collapse and you mm. know and ultimately i mean theoretically you you could have some sort of hyper situation now i I'm, I'm not saying that that's going to happen or on the cards uh far from it but but there is a question you know when you have a country that has more than two billion pounds uh, but sorry two trillion, trillion yeah. pounds of debt and when your debt is representing roughly a hundred percent of gdp given uh, a plus or minus a few percentage points but when you're roughly 100 gdp um, I, all your all your you know work and effort and earnings for a year would only pay off the debt. I mean, imagine that. Um, put it in context of, um, of, of 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 a of a of a family having you know a credit card debt that equaled all their um, uh, uh, income for for a, for a year. That's a, that's a huge sum of money. And what happens, of course, um, to your wiggle room and your expenditure? your capacity to fund things like the nhs or the armed forces or schools what happens if there is you know inflation hitting three four five percent and actually the central bank needs to push up interest rates uh, but even if they just push up interest rates by one percent the hit to government of that increased interest rate on its debt is astronomic i mean with a blink of an eye, suddenly, you know, uh, uh, even a small percentage increase um, at the central bank can cost the government, you know, tens of billions of pounds um, of, of, of of debt servicing costs. And, and, I mean, to put that in context, what do we spend on our armed services? we probably spend like 40 or, or 50 billion a year. Um, and that's for the whole of our military, you know, our Air Force, Army, Navy. Um, it, it, yep. you know, you, you, you would, it wouldn't take a lot for interest rates to rise and for the debt servicing costs from the yes. government to 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 really put a huge strain um, on government expenditure. And it could be uh, quite quickly spiral to a situation that what people think was austerity following 2009-10 was actually a walk in the park to what we could be coming down the pipe. And this idea that the bank is between a rock and a hard place, where it was discussed some years ago by geeks, quite frankly, uh, and nerds uh, and pointy-headed policy wonks like you and me, Simon. Yes. This is now mainstream. I mean, you, know, you talk to yes. ordinary people now, and they are wondering what sort of wiggle room yes. the government has and where is going the central bank
1: would yes. in yeah. and um, yes again setting it in context I was trying to look up how much we'd actually um, been bailed out by the IMF for back in 76 I can I can never remember the amount but it's 3.9 billion then in dollars I can't remember what it was in in terms of pounds at the time <laughs> but I mean the numbers are now extraordinary and he does say doesn't he that one of the um, only reasons that the pound is has not really been affected is everybody is doing the same thing but he says you know it, um, he refers of course to the House of Lords report, which Andrew Bailey clearly was rather incensed by this idea that the Bank of England is, the House of Lords sorry is is just assuming that the Bank of England's uh, asset purchase program is indeed monetization of government debt. I mean monetization of government debt you know is the sort of thing we had expected of countries like Zimbabwe. We talk about that in the weimar republic um I mean it is scary this piece says the only reason it's not having an effect is because every single country of any notice doing the same thing.
0: You're absolutely spot on. And I think what really upset Andrew Bailey, and he clearly was livid, was that uh, the House of Lords report was called Quantitative Easing, a Dangerous Addiction? Question yes. mark. And one of its uh, authors, one of its sort of co-signatories, was Lord King of Lothbrook. Now, of course, Lord King uh, was the governor of the Bank of England during the financial crisis. And... Um, 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 uh, and w- no,
1: nobody more censorious than a converted addict. Well,
0: indeed. Um, but this idea, uh, which, again, is something that you and I have, have discussed and speculated on and wondered. I mean, you you, you and I, you know, were, were, were using that title in conversations we were having four or five years ago. Yes. Positive easing, a dangerous addiction. Um, but in a way, I don't think Andrew Bailey should be surprised that Lord King has put his name to this, because, of course... Um, 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 he wrote, did he not, The End of Alchemy. Yes, he did. Which was a very good book um, which came out, must have been six, seven years ago, uh, where he was making exactly this point. Um, He was making the point that when you have um, a system of fiat money, uh, paper money, that really rests on people's confidence um, and you have this, in effect, elastic money, which is what paper money is um you know the, the central bank can simply print it into existence or, or computerize it into existence in this world um the, the the money is no longer inelastic as it was when for example it, it was um, based on gold then 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 the money can stop being neutral money can be politicized it can be sucked in to all forms of statecraft and it can be debased um, it can be debased through inflation or hyperinflation or whatever, and debt can be written off with very serious political consequences. So I'm not surprised, given that Lord King wrote The End of Alchemy and what he said in that book, because he was warning central banks yes. of the dangers of the fiat money system, um, of the modern iteration of money, that, that most central banks and bankers seem to accept. Yes. He, must be,
1: he must be time. rather glad to have retired when he did, I imagine. So it's not necessarily his problem, at least as far as um, responsibility is concerned. The article also makes makes one other very interesting point, that because of QE, the government's debt profile has changed significantly. Now, it used to be the case, of course, that unlike many other countries, we had a very long-term debt profile, so that short-term changes in interest rates didn't necessarily affect us. But as he's pointing out, QE has significantly reduced the length of maturity of government debt, so that far more of it is now... um, index to inflation so that any changes in interest rates are going to affect the government immediately much much to a much greater extent than used to be the case exactly and um
0: this is where um not only are there serious political risks because if you get it wrong and um uh, for example if you don't if inflation takes off as i think now everyone expects it to um, and you don't have an appropriate interest rate rise, inflation, it can be like actually throwing a match on a foam sofa yeah, to yeah. get out of hand in a surprising way. Yeah. And there are many, many examples, and you've cited some already, mm. where central bankers have been sort of caught
1: short. Well, in- particularly when you have a government spending money like a drunken sailor on shore leave. Exactly. Um, but, it, it you know, it also... Um,
0: this really can have an impact on nation's politics, because, as Friedrich Hayek argued, the Nobel laureate in in economics, often to understand history, you actually have to understand the history of inflation. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Adolf Hitler would not have come to power without the hyperinflation and the collapse of uh, of Weimar Germany and the hyperinflation in the early 20s. Um, I think it was Lenin who said that if you want a revolution... Then um, you have to grind the middle classes between high taxes and high inflation. Um, so, inflation is a really, really uh, significant and risky force um, in uh, the economic
1: end of statecraft. Tim, uh, time for us to change topics to our final topic
0: Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
1: is Simon Rose. I'm in conversation for The Bigger Picture with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, what's our final topic today, please?
0: Charles Moore wrote a, a, a fascinating piece and it was called HMS Queen Elizabeth is Leading Britain into a New Era of Security Policy. And in a nutshell, what he's arguing, and it's a really unusual take, actually, um, what he's arguing is that this new sparkly British... Uh, aircraft carrier the 65,000 ton aircraft carrier the navy's got and um and uh, escorted i believe by an astute class submarine and um uh, with various uh destroyers type 45 destroyers um and frigates and raw fleet auxiliary ships what they call tide class vessels um has gone off you know on a on, on, on a global sort of more maiden voyage, basically Britain sent a, a carrier, uh, a strike carrier capability uh, off to the Far East. It, it's visiting 40 countries and it's sort of signaling a rebalancing of Britain's security policy. Now I'm gonna use a, a phrase that's very un- politically incorrect and one that many people don't like, but it, 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 it has resonance. It's, it's really about the Royal Navy uh, and Britain and its trading ambitions uh, moving east of Suez, as power, as, as we know, is also moving east. What's really interesting about this article, though, is not the detail of how you know, this carrier is shoring up alliances with Malaysia and Singapore and Australia and New Zealand and all that, but it, it's about how the, the this voyage is also... Uh, realigning Whitehall and the thinking of Whitehall back at home. Um, and that's a really interesting take. It is that, that you know, as you have this carrier strike group going, doing, doing this tour, as it goes through the Malacca Straits um, and is docking at places like Singapore, so the Foreign Office is having to... Um, uh, uh, become more focused on, for example, uh the the the, the impact uh that, that that China's human rights record is having in that region, the way that that China is treating the Uyghur people, the adverse impact that China is now having on Hong Kong. Um, it's the way that 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 for example the departments of state that that have to deal with trade are having to focus on um strategic choices for the future um between for, for example china and india china of course has massive demographic demographic problems it's going to lose two or three four hundred million people in its population over the decades ahead whereas china but whereas India, the world's largest democracy um is going to have a booming population a vastly increased middle class etc so what you know um by the royal navy docking again um and, and actually having literally docking rights in Singapore, um uh, is making you know all our departments of state focus much more clearly you know on that part of the world and a sort of the way that, that Whitehall operates. And this is then feeding back into um the way that the that the that the military and the civilian departments of state in Whitehall are, 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 are rebalancing and sort of readjusting to this new Brexit world. It's again as if this voyage has become emblematic and totemic, but also a learning opportunity and an educative opportunity for Whitehall to really get to grips with this new era of diplomacy. And I hadn't thought of that. I just thought this carrier group went off and and, and sort of signaled things to the world. I didn't fully appreciate, and this is why I think it's such a brilliant piece of journalism, that it was also about engendering a cultural shift and a shift in mindset back at home.
1: And I think that's so right. Though he does point out, he was rather surprised that The Voyage is not attracting more publicity back back home. Though it's perfectly possible because they don't want too much publicity. And I don't know about that, but, but, the, but, but whether
0: it gets the publicity or not, when you have a, a carrier strike group that is going off into that part of the world, And and is sort of re-establishing military ties and trading ties, um, and and sort of just brings back you know wow we have these sailors we're getting all this media coverage because of their visits you know um, in that part of the world and and that that there are all kinds of trade deals being done upon it is it does represent a shift in mindset and and it really brings home just how different now I think the mindset going into 2022. Of whitehall is going to be um to for example where whitehall was what was in the run-up to brexit let's say 2014-15 um that's why this voyage is so significant yes it's about what it mirrors back
1: to the heart of government in london Tim, fascinating as ever thank you very much for discussing all three topics today and i've been in conversation with tim evans who's professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. He'll be back with me in a fortnight's time.
0: The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.